Hey, I'm Sean. And I'm Jesse. And, and we're, we're the, the DMs, DMs of, of Vancouver. Vancouver. We're two newish DMs who are still getting the hang of the whole DM thing. So we sit down with a friend every couple of weeks and pick their brain on their approach to DMing. So come along as we figure out how to help our players have the best time possible at the gaming table. Today's episode is brought to you by Adventure Dice. Adventure Dice is an online dice shop based here in Vancouver, selling a variety of dice and other gaming accessories. Personally, I'm a big fan of their rolling trays and the grounded pixie dice set. Adventure Dice ships for free anywhere in Canada, and if you use the code DMV at checkout, you can get a 10% discount on your purchase. That's DMV for a nice discount on your new tabletop gear. Find the shop at adventuredice.ca and roll for adventure! Hey folks, welcome to another episode of DMs of Vancouver. Today we're talking about Orpheus Protocol. Today we're talking to Rob Stith. How's it going, Rob? It's going pretty decently. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. Um, So, I mean, obviously you're involved with Orpheus Protocol, but do you want to give us a quick background about how you're involved? Well, uh, I I do it. (laughs) I, I do the Orpheus Protocol. The Orpheus Protocol is certainly my baby. Uh... I am the developer of the game and the GM of the campaigns uh, for the podcast, the editor, producer, webmaster, blah, blah, blah of the podcast. Uh, So it's the thing that eats all of my time. Uh, (laughs) So, yeah, I I kind of like Athena bursting forth from the forehead (laughs) like this. This thing came out of me and then made things interesting. (laughs) Um, do you also write for the, because I know there's a web series based on it as well. Yes, I I write the scripts for that with John, uh, who is, uh, I, I was a screenwriter before I did anything with role-playing games, really, uh, in a in a professional capacity. And John is a very good friend of mine from a very long time ago, and we are screenwriting partners. Uh, we've made a movie called The Nightmare Gallery, which is available on Amazon Prime, uh, included with your membership right now to watch. It's a uh, cosmic horror film starring Amber Benson from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Uh, we've done various short films and things like that, too. And yeah, the Orpheus Protocol web series is just us having fun in this world that I made, uh, writing some scripts together and seeing how cheaply we can uh, film them. <laughs> That's really awesome. So I think Jesse has explained a little bit to me what Orpheus Protocol is, but for our listeners who are uh, not as familiar, why don't you give us a a breakdown of what Orpheus Protocol is? So the Orpheus Protocol as a game, uh, if you want to look at genre uh, and tone, it is a modern cosmic horror spy thriller Okay. Basically, in in genre, you play as agents of a very powerful, very connected secret organization who called Orpheus, of course, whose mission is to assess, contain and exploit paranormal phenomena the world over in a bid to keep society stable and keep the world safe, but also to make fabulous sums of money on the side and seek a monopoly on deployable paranormal power. Okay. Uh, so players are playing as agents of the organization, often organized into cells, but you know, it's your campaign, do what you want. <laughs> uh, and they go to investigate unnatural happenings and often come to blows with them uh, with varying degrees of success. The game allows for your kind of classic Lovecraftian 
wow is fighting a bad idea like i i'm an effete researcher with all these books and problematic ideas about culture and now a fish monster is eating me that can be done in orpheus but you can also do something much more along the lines of jason Bourne versus cthulhu with the rules as well so i i like the idea of uh what you're saying about like making millions of dollars on the side like the idea that yeah i'm gonna i'll save the world but i want to get paid (laughs) i mean nothing nothing can be uh materially significant enough to marshal the resources to save the world in the world we live in without being a vast and unethical for-profit corporation (laughs) what i really like about the setting you've built here is not only do you get the kind of like i think the the obvious standard where it's like we go and we face down this monster or investigate this thing or spy on these other agencies who might be you know trying to bring about the end of the world but it also allows for a very much like us realize something is wrong with orpheus and kind of turning back and fighting against them if you want to go that way oh yeah that's certainly baked in it's happened a lot in the canonicity the continuity of the podcast but in people's home games when the book is completed i mean there's going to be a lot of stuff in the gm section about like challenge your players by having them have to do stuff like this and like have the orders not always be super pleasant to follow because there is dirty work involved in keeping a multi-billion dollar secret society running uh And you have to make your own ethical choices about how much you want to be involved. It's a catch-22 because they are the ones keeping the world safe, but they're not the good guys in the classic sense. Right. I Uh, think, just really quick, I think that's one of the things that I'm I'm liking what I'm hearing because I've I've looked into other role-playing games on Kickstarter or ones that people have just put up on DriveThruRPG, and the thing that I find about the ones that I don't like is that they really try to constrain what kind of story you can tell. Oh, they're very like, it's like a giant meta plot sections and things like that. that Yeah. The world of darkness problem, right? Besides all the obvious uh, other problems, but uh, the idea that you have every cool thing that anyone could ever do has already been done by an NPC. That's infinitely cooler than you. Uh, this is something you see in Legend of Five Rings, too. And I'm not a big fan of that style of world presentation in RPGs. Like, I want to build a fun sandbox slash theme park for GMs and players to make stories together in, not be like, well, here's my cool story. You idiots can, like, go play in the corner, I guess. Try not to touch anything. <laughs> yeah, where you're giving the players a, and the GM a sandbox in, instead of, like, Okay, this is a pirate-themed game, so all you're going to do is sail ships and go find treasure. That's it. You can't tell any other kind of story. But giving the freedom to the people who want to play this game, I think, is... To me, that's a big selling point. Yeah, well, um, I'm actually a fan of games that heavily constrain the game experience because I think ludonarrative harmony is the most important aspect of game design. Uh, The mechanics need to not only not be in your way, but literally help reinforce the intended emotional tone of the story that you're trying to tell. So games that are designed to do a specific experience and designed well to do so are totally fine by me. But with a game that's a little more of like the big book game, like Orpheus, where you have really a uh, pretty mechanically robust game with a lot of detail and crunch to it, I find that to be less effective Uh, You really do want to give, I think, 
I think there's value in either building a toolbox, like a utility belt for GMs to tell whatever story they want, just with some mechanical guidance towards a certain tone versus like, here is Starcrossed. It's a game about will they, won't they? That's what it is. One person plays each person who might. Right. Or, <laughs> and, or a game you like know what Fiasco. I mean. Like Fiasco exactly. is a game where the outcome is everybody's going to like their characters are all going to have a bad time because it's fiasco, but yeah, it's like, it's a 50 Coen brothers pile up every time by design. <laughs> yeah. By design. But it's, it's the games where they try to pretend like, Oh, like we've got a book as thick as the, you know, D and D fifth edition players handbook, but you can only play this kind of game with it is just off. Oh yeah. I, I think that that is equally sinful as the, Oh, it's a game that, is setting agnostic and you can do any kind of story in this game that the, the fine text there is you can do any kind of game unsatisfyingly in it because the mechanics aren't going to help support it. Right. Um, um, speaking of the mechanics, uh, why don't you tell us a bit about the core mechanics involved in Orpheus? Okay. So when I was deciding sort of that I was going to de- sort of develop this uh, homebrew role-playing game that I'd been working on very casually, not very seriously for quite a long time into something consumable by an audience, by the public. I was on just an absolute high with Euro-style board games. I'd sort of very recently discovered that board games could be good and not Monopoly. And I was going crazy for like Ticket to Ride and Splendor and Dominion and things like that. Uh, Scythe later. Uh, And the concept of resource management really sang to me in terms of like something that would work awesomely in a role-playing game in a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, And it struck me as like such a refreshing potential alternative to roll a die with a certain quite large number of sides and see from the die, if I do something or just don't do anything, Um, which had been quite frustrating to me for a while. Uh, so I wanted to try making a game where, yes, there are dice. Yes, there's randomness. It's not a solved game. It's not a diceless game. But the contribution of the dice is both a smaller percentage of the overall expected result than you see in a lot of games, and your skill in managing various different stacking pools of resources is more predictive of success or failure than actually what the dice say. I... Um, so. Go ahead. Uh, I I really like that idea of having one or more resource pools because I think it's one of the things that I really like about Fate is that the players have a small but very influential pool that they can use to change the outcome of a die roll or to give them a better chance at something or to say, no, that roll was really bad. I'm going to try again and then completely change the outcome and be able to tell the story that they really want to tell. And... I find that games where there's no chance really of failure, like you're just going to, it's not even really in question. Uh, They tire me out pretty quickly, but it feels bad to fail in a game or especially where you have like a deep narrative investment going in something and you, you lose because of a quirk of physics between a piece of plastic and your table, right? Like that's, that sucks. And I find it much more satisfying to fail in a role-playing game scenario because I overspent, I overextended myself. I'm, I'm out. I've run out. I, I'm, I have no more breath in my lungs. I have no more willpower in my mind. Uh, and I'm ground down. And so I just can't. And that's how defeat happens. Uh, that seems more 
sort of aesthetically narratively satisfying to me and makes the player feel a sense of ownership of their failures instead of just getting screwed for the most part yeah it's the, uh, so the, the core mechanics are small stat numbers your basic attributes don't go above five five is the human maximum okay uh and the dice are three fudge dice. So these are dice that have a min- two minus faces, two blank faces, and two plus faces. So the roll of three dice is a maximum swing of negative three to plus three on top of a possible five. Uh, so you can already see that like the dice, while important, are much less important than, say, a d20 would be. Or like a 3d6 system would be, generally speaking, or a percentile system. Uh, and then your resource management determines things further because you have pools of strain for mental physical and spiritual which there are six attributes in the game two mental two physical two spiritual and you have a pool of strain for each of those groups and you can spend points of strain to boost your roles uh and how much you can spend and how much benefit you get for spending is based on your ranks in skills skills don't add to your result they make your uh results potentially higher and more consistently not bad because that feels to me more like what the function of practice and skill and precision and stuff would be in real life. Uh, if you're, if you're strong enough to throw the knockout punch, you're strong enough to throw the knockout punch. But if you've trained in boxing for 15 years, you're probably really good at not making mistakes while throwing that knockout punch. Um, and it's a battle of like, do I spend my resources here or do I hoard them for something else? Because the same resources, that same strain that you use to succeed more highly is also used to buy down incoming damage. And you have to choose whether the best defense is a good offense or not. Um, and that is but one of the resource systems in the game. There's there's actually several more. Uh, and that might sound intimidating, but like it all flows pretty decently once you get the hang of it. It's not Phoenix Command. Like it's not it's not like a ridiculously over granular. We're not calculating the wind, <laughs> the the impact of the wind on the stream of bullets or anything like that, or like how much a bullet deforms based on what kind of armor and things like that. It's not it's not that level of crunch. So I would say it is D and D esque, but like in a completely different direction where the mechanical focus is. Right. So something that I'm curious about is: Were you uh, inspired at all by the the end of the world games? They're the it's like a set of four different games that are all about different scenarios for the apocalypse. There's a zombie one, a robot one, an alien one. Yeah, I've 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 one. seen those at conventions and stuff, but I've never read nor played anything. Uh, about them so now okay. I, I didn't know about them till well after what i was inspired by uh setting wise fiction wise uh was basically like what about a more comic booky little over the top version of the x-files or twin peaks like the fbi investigation side of the twin peaks not the soap opera side right. of things obviously uh, <laughs> project blue book and, and all that stuff uh like x-files and twin peaks type stuff but crossed with cosmic horror like with like like uh i say lovecraftian but i don't really mean lovecraftian it's one of those words that you use to evoke a certain thing but like let it be known this isn't a cthulhu game you're not going to fight a shoggoth in this game because that shit isn't scary anymore. Everyone <laughs> knows what they all are. Like you have to make new stuff that violates expectations and comfort zones and laws of reality and stuff like that. If you want to have any prayer of being actually scary. Uh, 
and so also and also i just don't want to I don't want to give any more airtime to, you know, an old dead racist, uh, even if his ideas were kind of rad. Uh, <laughs> so, but it's, the, I was inspired setting wise by X-Files, Twin Peaks, to a degree, the uh, Funcom game, the secret world. Uh, and like, what if the X-Men were involved in this instead of just dudes? Uh, the crazy thing is that I'd never heard of Delta Green before making this game. Right. And I was, briefly quite horrified to find that delta green existed because i was like oh god someone already made my game and i'm just a ripoff artist but when i actually learned what delta green was i was much less worried about it because it is uh much more down to earth uh than than orpheus and it's not it is not a dark modern fantasy that dips into horror I mean, with gusto, but horror is part of the cocktail and not the thing itself. Whereas Delta Green seems completely bleak and hopeless and disempowering. And like, I love that, but that's not what I was making. Um, mechanically speaking, like I said, I was I was inspired, I suppose, by three things. One, my frustrations with other role-playing games that I play. That's why I was homebrewing a role-playing game in the first place. There were things like the fact that armor makes you harder to hit instead of making you take less damage in Dungeons & Dragons that bothered me from the time that I was like nine years old. Uh, and just various things in various games like, ah, oh, there, there are better ways of doing that. I, I wonder if I could make something that worked. And of course, the first draft of what would become Orpheus was an absolute Frankensteinian nightmare of just like stitched together things that didn't match that were just responses to things for which playing it would have no context for what was being responded to. It was bad. Uh, but that's what game development is for. Uh, and then the other things I was inspired by besides just the stuff that I thought could be done better was, as I said, Euro board games, resource management stuff. And just this absolute eureka moment watching some people play dread at a convention where I was where I discovered essentially like a bolt of lightning from the clear blue sky, ludonarrativity. I was like, oh my God, the way that you play the game makes you feel the way the story is supposed to make you feel. And then, you know, in terms of how I look at games, I was forever changed at that moment. God, dread has such a cool mechanic. Like mm -hmm. It's one of those uh, things probably you... has a permanent spot in my like top five favorite tabletop RPGs as simple as it is and as like problematic it is in terms of like, you know, disability access hmm. and uh, some issues with like, well, figuring out what library book you need is just as dangerous as fighting the killer head on because the only thing you can do is pull a thing. It doesn't matter. Like the purity of how the inter the interactions of the mechanics and the intended aesthetic uh experience goes is basically peerless and it's like it's such a good lesson uh in in game design on top of being a fantastic game so something that i'm curious about is how you work horror elements into into orpheus protocol because something that i've seen with other role-playing games that try to do horror is they usually just lean on making the players afraid to do something because they've got a very tiny health pool or they're very limited in the actions that they can take. So the horror is not so much horror. It's just, I'm afraid to do anything because I'm going to right. die. It's extremely dangerous. And so I am conditioned by play to be incredibly paranoid and cautious. Yeah. Um, burn the book, right? Don't read it. Uh, burn the house down. Don't investigate it, etc. Yeah. Where's the dynamite? Uh, yeah. Um, 
that's not how we do it. Actually, despite how nasty combat can be in Orpheus, the rules are surprisingly and on purpose averse to killing player characters just outright. It certainly happens, but you're much more likely to be uh, disabled and taken out of a fight and given some lasting consequence for being hurt than you are to truly die in a moment. Uh, Because the real horror is more about what you are witness to, which is the GM's job, and what you become in facing these things. Because another resource, another one of the resource systems in Orpheus is humanity. And engaging with your supernatural powers, if you build a character that has them, it is possible to build a character who doesn't, uh, and they're balanced. Uh, If you want to just have soldier and or cyborg abilities, you don't have like a supernatural archetype. But you still have to worry about humanity because repressing horror, like not facing, just denying horrific things that you see costs you humanity and doing things that are alienating to your humanity, like killing someone who may not have been a threat to you just out of paranoia or torturing someone for information or various other things that have a traumatic effect on the person who does the thing caused you to lose your humanity over time. And as you reach certain thresholds of lower and lower humanity, you start manifesting negative symptoms Uh, as you become darker and darker and more sort of dehumanized by your trauma. And so it's more about like the long-term development of the character, the long-term degeneration of a character as, as a source of horror rather than like, Oh, if you roll too low on this check, you die and the story ends. Um, And specifically I should call attention to a very simple, a very fluffy rule in the game that I think every game should have actually now that I've, that I've written it down. It's the borrowed time rule. And I just put it in, I think GMs do this all the time, just as house rule, just as fiat. But I just put it in the text. If a player character would die, according to the mechanics of the game, and the GM and the player both agree that it would be narratively unsatisfactory, they don't die. (laughs) They cease to gain XP, and they work out what the next available time that would not be a huge letdown for their character to die would be. And they die at that point because who the hell wants to make a character. And if you're doing like a story heavy game, develop a cool backstory that the GM then works into the adventure hooks of the game and really inhabit and depict that character and experience the story through that character's eyes and then flub a role and just be dead with no impact on the story like a stray bullet hits you and you're done. Like players deserve dramatic death scenes that are either super heroic or tragic or horrifying. Uh, You don't deserve to be like, oh crap, natural one, I fall down and poop my pants and now I'm out of the story. Uh, And so it's just a rule. No one dies a shitty, unsatisfying death in Orpheus because the game says that's against the rules. Okay, I love this. And I think I'm going to try and incorporate it into my games. Well, the ones when they get lethal. Um, I wanted to quickly talk to you about the humanity rule. Actually, really yeah. quickly, oh, I wanted to Sean say something about the the borrowed time thing because it's actually um, it's actually something I because I've got all of the end of the world books, and that's actually in the um, the deities book where one of the apocalypses is Ragnarok. Uh, one of yeah. the the things in that apocalypse is that you can do that basically where if it's a time where you know a player decides like okay this is 
a really like I can hold off this approaching horde of undead warriors. Um, and I talk it over really quickly with the GM and we both know I'm going to die, but I'm going to make this my narrative, super awesome death scene. And I get to a bunch of bonuses, but it means that this is the scene where I die. That's very cool. Yeah. There's a corollary to the borrowed time rule called blaze of glory, uh, which is optional. It's an optional rule. Uh, you can take your last round or your last turn and have like a ridiculous supercharge of resources to use on that last bit that you do. Uh, it might not be appropriate in extremely bleak, like Lovecraftian games, but if you're tending more toward the, what if the X files were being investigated by the X men, uh, <laughs> which is one of the elevator pitches that I use for Orpheus. Uh, it's pretty fun uh, to just have more resources than you're supposed to be able to have and just go out in a blaze of glory as the rule suggests mm -hmm. nice so i i was looking through some of your uh the free play test materials that you have available for the game um and i noticed the humanity scale for the hero archetype and i wanted yeah. to say that i thought that was actually really brilliant the way that you could play someone who is like an iconic like proper kind of legendary hero but who eventually through losing their humanity becomes just their virtue and just their flaw in the end yeah yeah, uh, so it's, yeah, the hero archetype is very much like Heracles or Beowulf, Cuchulain, uh, people like that, right? They have these fantastic powers, but they have, like, very noticeable flaws that plague them constantly, uh, and, and that's how the hero archetype works. You do all these iconic, like, inspirational things, amazing feats of strength and uh, physical competence, uh, absorbing more damage than you should be able to, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But as you spend humanity on that stuff, you start being less and less able to resist the compulsion to act in accordance with your heroic principles. And a hero archetype must choose two heroic virtues and one heroic flaw. And so as you get lower and lower humanity, you are less and less able to avoid always answering the compulsion for your virtues and the temptation toward your flaws. Uh, you know, gigantic in mirth and gigantic in miseries, right? Uh, you know, you've you've got Gilgamesh, you know, never really got over himself. I mean, he he tried, but, uh, you know, hubris is a hell of a drug. Uh, rage uh, is something that various heroes have dealt with as well, um, as well as uh, Kratos, I guess, from the video game world, <laughs> uh, who would certainly fit that archetype. So, yeah, yeah. And, and, and every archetype barring cyborg and soldier because those are mundane have a sort of flavorful descent into madness and inhumanity uh on on the humanity chart uh where as it gets worse and worse they more and more exemplify the unnatural aspects of their powers uh rather than their own personality uncut uh with with these evil tendencies magic is not a good thing that comes from place of goodness in the world of orpheus you are you are harnessing a dirty, dirty burning fire and you're going to be tainted by it. You're going to be corrupted by it uh, and managing how corrupted you are versus how much power you bring to bear in the struggle to keep the world safe is part of the experience of the game. And again, cyborg and hero archetypes just start manifesting, you know, trauma based difficulties, PTSD, behavioral problems, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 
as they become, you know, more and more alienated from their humanity. Cause like, you, you know, you see it a lot in uh, professions that expose you to a huge amount of trauma. Uh, sometimes people have a lot of fucking trouble. Uh, I should have probably asked if I could curse on this. Maybe oh, you, can, you can absolutely curse. It's fine. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. I've been really holding myself back. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, and so, you know, you see that and that that's reflected uh, in the rules as well, but it's important to note that like both in your sort of uh, if you're doing a mundane archetype, the trauma that you experience and manifest as your humanity dwindles as well as your immediate reactions to breakdown, which is like when you really badly get hit by a horror check or right there are status effects in the game like take a particularly nasty physical hit you might get the bleeding status effect which naturally you can be bloody and be bleeding from minor wounds but like if you are bleeding in game terms that means you are going to die without medical attention um and similarly there's days for mental stuff like if your senses get overwhelmed like a flashbang or like maybe you get drugged or something like that you're going to lose some competence uh and then the the spiritual uh, status effect is breakdown is you the stress gets too much and you lose contact with reality and depending on how bad it is maybe it's just a brief fight flight or freeze reflex or it could be like a full break with reality that lasts a certain amount of time and it's very important uh in, and and is very like clearly spelled out in the rules that those things are to be understood between the player and the gm before they happen uh, the no-go zones, like lines and veils, safety tools, X card, that sort of thing. You you do not have someone fail a horror check and then just tell them that they start doing a thing that might legitimately traumatize them to hear about in real life. So you need to talk to your players first, which is just a very important thing to do in any kind of game that has like a lot of violence and a lot of dark subject matter. Um, so... Something that I'm curious about is you, you had mentioned earlier that when you your first version of this game was uh, not great and you've been doing an actual play. And I'm curious how doing an actual play has helped you play test and how it's affected the game over time. Well, it, it is the play test primarily um, because I, I sort of the thought process was this is a pretty crunchy game. It's, it's fairly hefty. There's going to have to be a huge amount of play testing for this thing. Instead of just making a few adventures and playing them over and over and over and over again with a million different people, I was like, why don't I just find a smaller number of people who I really want to play a lot of role-playing games with and make a an ongoing campaign uh, where we test the rules, we find edge cases, we find gaps in the rules, we find things that are too clunky or weird to engage with, and we do the play testing, but as a story a continuous story develops and we enrich and experience together because that sounds more fun to me. Uh, and it, and of course has evolved to have the amazing side benefit of being my career uh, because, you know, the, the podcast succeeded a lot more than I thought it would. And uh, people are very into this story that I've been telling for the last three years. Uh, and so that's been, you know, uh, very rewarding, surprising, but, in the first place, I just wanted the playtest process to be more fun and having the same people come back over and over again really helped us see if the proposed changes did what they were supposed to do or not. Uh, the iteration process was great when the same people were seeing the results over and over again. Yeah, and I imagine... Now, I suppose I exposed myself to potential gaps in the playtest 
knowledge pool, but I was pretty careful about who I picked. Yeah. So well, hopefully, hopefully it works out. I yeah. feel like it mostly has. Well, and I feel like you may also have the added benefit of having an audience who listens in and who might, you know, get like, oh, yeah. does the audience I mean, chime in about rule changes and stuff like that? Oh, sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I get, I get a lot of uh, tongue in cheek moaning when I announce that like certain abilities are getting nerfed. <laughs> Um, like very much like I'm some kind of, you know, MMO or looter shooter developer, right. Where I'm like, ah, this is a little, but this is a little much or like, I guess, uh, uh, like, a man, I don't remember what they're called. MOBAs. Right. I'm old. Um, (laughs) but I mean, everyone just plays Fortnite now. Right. But, uh, it's, it's cool to have that real time feedback. And now what I'm doing for playtesting isn't even the lion's share because there's like an entire discord server of fans who organize games on that server. And so there are people playing it, multiple games being played every day that I can go find out stuff about uh, and see if there are any problems and things like that. Do you have any kind of like a form or anything, or is it just like kind of casual feedback about the game? Because it's one of the things I remember when, D&D 5th edition was still D&D next they had kind of a formal system for like hey play this set, play this scenario and let us know who played what how did it go how did combat feel like there was kind of a questionnaire so that they could be fine tuning the game as they were right developing it do you have anything like that or is it a little bit more loosey-goosey it, it's certainly loosier and goosier than that because <laughs> that sort of more directed play test is something that I work into the campaign that I'm running, the campaigns, I should say, right. that I'm running. If I think, like, we really need to see if the rules for challenges can handle, uh, you know, a conflict that has this huge number of people in it, right? Uh, I'll find a way to put that into one of the games that I'm running uh, and see how it goes. Um, the It's a more scattershot approach with the fan server. It's just they play all kinds of stuff, and I find out when they run into stuff that's weird... And I can make a determination on whether there is something I can do to the rules that will have like a, you know, net positive effect. Uh, but but in terms of like the more guided stuff, I'm already doing that myself all the time. Uh, so I, I don't see a reason because like I not only need specific rules to be tested, I need the ability of the game to allow people to make their own stories in their own games be tested, which is what the fan server's for, ultimately. I think this is a good way to go about it. Like, one of my... I, I love D&D a lot. It's my main game. But, like, I have found several problems in 5e, even just in the player's handbook, where I'm like, you know, I know they did all this playtesting. How did they miss X, Y, and Z? Um, and I think the fact that like, A, you're running lots of these games yourself and also running them where people can see them and like people who are watching can also go, oh, wait, no, that thing's mm-hmm. kind of weird. But also that you're, you know, you're kind of just giving like having the rules available to people to play their own games and get back to you instead of being like, here is this one adventure where you're only ever going to experience these five things. <laughs> right, right. And that's that's always a, a problem because you probably can't possibly encapsulate all the edge cases that are going to come up uh and and nor should you have to but like you're pretty limited uh in that format whereas like i've released like 142 episodes of actual play content in just the main campaign i think uh so we've we've gone through a ton of different situations and seen like and there's been so many times that we've been recording where i'll say hold on (laughs) the rules can't do this I think uh, 
the thing with the D&D playtesting is I think you also run into the problem of it's kind of the perennial problem of D&D is min-maxers. Like, you know, if you only release one or two scenarios, some of the people playtesting are going to be trying to figure out how do I do the most damage and not really care too much about how they might be mm-hmm. unintentionally or or intentionally breaking the rules to do it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's true. Min-maxing is pretty hard in Orpheus. I will say there have been a couple things that players have found that I've had to actually directly address in the rules, uh, but that's relatively rare, uh, and it's made explicit, um, or rather shall be made explicit in the GM section of the book, that a properly run Orpheus adventure ought to, while not necessarily exactly balanced, exactly equal, it ought to contain roughly equal proportions of combat investigation and social influence type scenes uh with horror you know sprinkled to taste throughout uh you should challenge people mentally physically and spiritually or emotionally uh in in your in your games so that min maxing isn't a problem because there have been characters in the campaign that have like amazing physical stats and are just absolute ridiculous combat monsters who can't tell if someone's lying to them (laughs) Uh, or like can't convince another soul of a thing or if they need to find a clue, they're completely helpless. Um, And that's the result of min maxing in the Orpheus protocol. You have to take those points from somewhere. Uh, and similarly, there there was like one of the main main players at the start of the campaign was unbelievable at manipulating people socially. But like when it came to fisticuffs, God, he just couldn't do anything like it was just running away. <laughs> and <laughs> and so, like, if you want to be superlative at something, you have to be kind of shit at something else, um, at least at the start. Yeah. And so uh that's how you uh, that's how at least in Orpheus you address min maxing is you make sure that the scenarios that you put forth to the players contain all of those elements which is like good dming anyway right so it's kind of like a very natural and i think obvious place for a lot of people to get to because if you're running for people you want to be able to challenge all of the characters in their own way but i think it's yeah. something that... i mean if you want to run a combat like just combat 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 over and over again thing you can but just expect your players to always be rolling five plus dice on everything because if that's all you're going to give them they can just be awesome at it and i think it's one of the things that system what i'm hearing about orpheus protocol and other systems that do like point by or something where being really good at something means you're bad at something else and having like an explicit direction to the GM to be like, hey, your game shouldn't be all combat because then if somebody just specializes in combat, then they're good. Because, yeah, like the idea that if you're really good at something, you're bad at something else is kind of, I think, where D&D falls down a little bit because you can be really good at combat and horrible at talking to somebody, but it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. Well, and even more so, I would argue, maybe than making sure that someone is not overpowered by min-maxing into something that's overly focused on in the game I think the thing that's even worse than that is what if somebody really wants to be awesome at doing the research, like in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, library montage and finding secret clues in places or, you know, getting the truth out of people and stuff like that. If they invest a bunch of points in that and then you don't give them anything to do in that vein, like that feels bad. So 
Something that I'm kind of curious about, because we are talking a bit about combat and, and research into the, what the, the issue of the, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to overcome is, is monsters and stuff like that. Because something that I've noticed about other horror games, and I think this is where horror games sometimes fall flat, is that they, they don't treat the monster like it's the alien from the first Alien movie, where uh-huh. it's, it's something like, to me, a horror game with monsters, the monster is something that you should barely ever see, that when you do see it, like you're questioning, did I see it? Or was it just a rat scurrying around the corner kind of deal? Whereas some games, like, it's why I find, I think that D&D doesn't do horror super well, is because like everybody kind of knows what all the monsters look like and you have to really work hard at making a monster scary again because i mean not just because the characters are super powerful but because like everybody kind of knows what goblins are so it's really hard to make goblins terrifying oh yeah absolutely i mean and you can you can take the effort and do that if you want but consider if you gave something many of the traits that a goblin has but describe it as something completely different than a goblin that none of the players have ever heard of before. Uh, and like, don't say exactly what the capabilities are. Don't say, don't give them the ability to look up what the stats are. <laughs> it's going to be a lot scarier. I don't think that I'm going to do quite as spicy a take as a horror game with a monster manual section isn't a horror game, but I'm not not saying that. <laughs> so I guess that, um, that's the question is like, does Orpheus protocol, does it have more just a set of rules for generating monsters? Absolutely. And NPCs? Yes. Okay. Like guidelines and advice for how you create supernatural adversaries that are actually going to be scary. Cause like the monsters that you can just fight, right? Your kobolds, your goblins, your giant lizard or whatever in D&D, that's in Orpheus. That's called other people who have knives or guns or something, <laughs> or like cultists who don't have a significant amount of magic power. They're just crazy and out to get you. Uh, or, you know, the cops, because you're probably doing a bunch of illegal stuff and some people in uniforms might start shooting at you for it. Uh, and so you can do those more straightforward combat things. I love doing those straightforward combat things, but like, if you, when you're doing the monstrous, it should be monstrous. Uh, and so I'm going to, you know, make sure to emphasize, like, here's not only mechanically what you do to make cool boss fights or whatever, but here's how you present a monster so that it is horrifying and you don't necessarily feel comfortable just straight up engaging it in combat. Uh, and it depends, of course, on the power level of the players and the tone of the specific game and stuff. But, like, it's important for it to be possible for for the monster to feel like sure the alien from the first alien film or the thing from the thing i i think it's it's kind of the place where a lot of games that try to do horror with lovecraft stuff it's where they fall down is because everybody knows what cthulhu looks like they know yep. you know the cthulhu rigan fatagan whatever that phrase is and it's where games that like try to do something new or that point you towards uh like folklore or stuff like that to go and like get inspired by something else because when everybody knows what cthulhu looks like it's really hard to use him effectively or it whatever you want to whatever it's a big octopus dragon yeah but it's not that scary it's scary in the books because no one knows what the fuck is going on and everyone's going nuts yeah but Uh, if you go into like, like uh folklore and you pull out something from like 
uh, like wherever you live, there's going to be folklore, whether it's from like people who immigrated or from from natives who used to live in the area. Like there is folklore all over the world with some really creepy shit in it. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, so I'm going to address two things here. One, uh, like I said, yeah, like everyone knows what a Bayaki looks like. Everyone knows the Shoggoth. And like, simply put, the the known is less scary than the unknown. Yeah. And because of fandom and because of a million games, you can't say the name of a Lovecraftian monster without at least someone at your table thinking of the hundred pictures they've seen of it. Uh, and the stories they've read about it and the understanding that they have of its capabilities. So despite those things being super scary when Lovecraft wrote about them, they are now just goblins. Yeah. And the other thing that I have done like a lot in the campaign is taking things from folklore, from world mythology, from religions and twisting them into something alien is taking the elements of those things that are uncanny or uncomfortable and magnifying them. I don't really want to like big do big spoilers for the campaign in case people, you know, listening here would like to come listen to some actual play that I'm told is quite well produced. <laughs> uh, but I, I've taken a Mesopotamian uh, fertility God at one point and just taken to its, taken it to its absurd horrific conclusion and that makes up a big part of one season of the show uh and it's it's a very unique threat it's a very interesting aesthetic for evil for supernatural for supernatural uh evil uh and it just comes from stuff that people thought needed to be done for the corn to grow a long long time ago and it works way better than saying oh it's a shoggoth it's a goo monster and it's gonna squish you and I think one of the things that works really well about using either something that you've made up or something that you've pulled from folklore or that you got inspired by some unknown cult horror movie or whatever it is, is that it makes the other skills like research and going and talking to people and trying to investigate. It actually makes those skills useful because in D&D, you, you start to, you know, describe what it is and the players are like, oh, it's a troll. Cool. We need fire. And yep, got to get that fire. But in the game like this, like the players, they don't know what its weaknesses are. If it's weak to anything, they don't know where to find it, how to hunt it down. They need to actually work at it. So th those players who have those skills, that's their chance to shine. And are you willing to spend the resources and put your own sanity at risk in order to find those answers? Yeah. That's a resource decision that you have to make. But if you want to make a game where researching the nature of the threat is a big part of what you're doing, which I would heartily recommend if you don't have like a mystery involved also, like if you don't have something else for investigative focused characters to do, uh, researching what the monster is is always a good choice. I would strongly recommend the GMs give the actual monstrous supernatural threat one or more really unfair advantages that can only be subverted by learning the right process uh, to to face them on terms that are winnable. Absolutely, I like I like I like the idea of like encountering a thing and having to actually make the decision of like do I try and blunt force this and have to deal with those probably very severe consequences or do we run right. and come back once we figured out what we have to do and it's one of the things that i like about like 
it's not a horror example it's a pulp action adventure example but dresden files where hell yeah (laughs) he'll be you know at the start of the a novel he has he might not have any idea what he's going up against or he might know but he doesn't know how to deal with it yet and the book is the story of him figuring out what he's up against and how to deal with it and yeah i mean most of of those books most of those books start with him getting his ass kicked yeah and then end with him getting his ass kicked worse but winning yeah i really need to get around to reading these books you do they're they're not like high high art but they're like vastly uproariously entertaining oh no i i love a trashy quick read urban fantasy i just haven't gotten around to them for whatever reason they're among the very good of that for Uh, sure so rob i think we're we're kind of coming to the end here and we usually ask a question about like going back in time and being able to figure out like giving yourself a tip for gming but i think for you uh, a better question might be if you uh if you stepped through a door and found yourself uh you know in your house five or six years ago what's one piece of advice about this play test that you would give yourself hmm hmm um i would say gather play test data but don't be quite so quick to apply it in the text of the rules. Find yourself someone with a background in technical writing and have them look at it with you as well first. Because this is something that I recently did. Uh, I've got a friend of mine who does a lot of scientific writing and he has been unbelievably helpful in reducing the possible misreads of rules. Uh, so like when I get playtest data and I understand the point, I understand the problem that someone ran into or the opportunity that they felt like wasn't there, that they wish there was something that let them uh, do it. And that's great and all, but it's very easy when you are patching things into a living rules document to create clashes between drafts and partial drafts. And writing rules at any level of complexity above like the very basic apocalypse world hacks is unbelievably fucking hard. And I'm not saying this to pat myself on the back. I'm an idiot for having a game this complicated be my first big game design thing, but it is what it is. It it, it became what it became. Uh, Rules are hard to write. Like people who are paid well and have nice big teams are bad at writing rules. Like numerous tabletop war games where like, adherence to the rules is the whole thing have like entire systems that don't work in certain editions of the games like oh look if you actually go by what the text says you know bombardment attacks don't work in 40k at a certain edition or like oh look we're playing war machine and if my miniature has any elevation even like a quarter of an inch they also have cover uh whether that's intended or not by the way the rules are actually written and like you can figure out what the developer's intent was a lot of the time but people are going to read your rules and like either get things that are actually in the text that you didn't mean to be or you know miss something that's in the text and make a wrong assumption and like having someone who has the chops to like really streamline the informational logistics of the actual words is like incalculably valuable if you're doing a game with any level of mechanical heft. And this is not uh, the and first I could have time. saved myself a ton of time, I think. And this is not the first time that I've heard somebody say that hiring a technical writer is a huge win when you're working on a tabletop game because they're like people who GM can write, they can often write well, but 
they often are better at writing stories and fluff and general ideas about how the rules should work. And you need somebody with that real technical writing mindset to come in and go, is this what you intend the players to do? Yes. Right. Okay, Find those it. tiny holes in things that there's room for misinterpretation in that like, not only, yeah, like you, you probably make a game because you're into storytelling more than because you're like, I like probability and I like trying to present complicated tables to people. <laughs> uh, it's, it's probably more that you like the storytelling. So like, there are going to be problems with that, but also even if you are awesome at technical writing, there is this thing that happens and it's happened to me, whether in writing a book, writing screenplays, uh, writing rules, you know what it's supposed to be in your head and you just start making mental shortcuts that you don't even notice you're taking. And when someone else reads it, they obviously don't take those shortcuts. They, they're not there. They're not actually on the page. Uh, and there are places where the, like the stream of understanding of the rules sort of gets blocked off momentarily that you never notice yourself. And it's virtually impossible to completely weed out that cognitive shortcutting uh, from yourself because it's done on a pre-conscious level. Yeah. So you really need someone else who knows what they're doing rules wise to go through your rules of the fine tooth comb, no matter how fine tooth the comb is, you're not, a, you're not even going to put the comb in all the places it needs to go because you're the one who made the thing. Yeah, I think some of the biggest fights I've seen online are the fights between rules as written and rules as intended. Oh, God. Just a giant headache. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, the problem is rules as written is the only one that exists. Yeah. Like, you can sometimes, sometimes it's fairly obvious, but there's a lot of room for interpretation of what the intent is based on your life experience. Like, you're going to bring all your own baggage and judgments and uh, cognitive foibles to that. So, oh, yeah. like, ideally, the rules need to say what to actually do. <laughs> <laughs> and and sadly, a lot of times they don't. Like, it's very, very hard to weed out all the cases where they don't actually say exactly what you do. Well, thank you so much for, for coming on and telling us about Orpheus Protocol. Uh, this yes. has been a blast. Yeah. Um... My, it's been my pleasure. Thank you both very much yeah so where can people find you in the show online so uh if you want to listen to the podcast it's available on uh stitcher and itunes i think they call it apple podcasts now uh and all that stuff just the orpheus protocol and uh i'm also orpheusprotocol.com if you want to just go straight to the website and do that uh we do have a discord at Orpheus Protocol on Twitter, there's a permanent link to the Discord community in the bio on our Twitter. Uh, Twitter's our main social media. I post episode announcements on Facebook, but I kind of hate Facebook, so I don't really go there much. Same. Uh, but yeah, so we're on Twitter for announcing stuff and talking about stuff. Lively discussion all the time, every minute of every day, it seems, on the Orpheus Protocol Discord. Uh, and... Yeah, I plug my Patreon on lots of episodes and lots of stuff because that's how I pay the bills. Yeah, uh, Patreon.com slash Orpheus Protocol for a frankly absurd amount of bonus content if you want. Like we've got entire bonus campaigns going up in AP format, oh, bloopers, awesome. interview shows, all kinds of silly cool stuff uh, for that as well. But the show itself will always be free and ad free because I can't stand hearing about blue apron and casper mattresses and all this garbage while i'm trying to hear a story and so you won't when you listen to my shows very nice um do you know when the book will be released 
So the tentative release date was June to July of next year. Okay. Uh, there, it's there's plenty of time for there to be delays with art and printing and layout and all that stuff. But so far, we haven't hit anything that makes me change my conception of when it's coming out. But we we easily could. You know, it's a Kickstarter. There's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of people who need to do a crap ton of work. But it will come out next year. Kind of like, I would say, almost no matter how catastrophic (laughs) things are, it's not going to be 2021. It's going to be 2020 when this thing comes out, even if it is give or take a couple months, depending on things that happen in the future. But so far, so good. All right. Well, you heard it here, folks. Orpheus Protocol should be out mid to maybe, but probably not late 2020. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to DMs of Vancouver. We acknowledge that the land we live, work, and play on is the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In recognition of that fact, we ask that you please support Raven, a charity that helps support Indigenous people throughout Canada. You can find them at raventrust.com. We are a part of the Cave Goblin Network. To check out other shows on the network, please visit cavegoblins.com. You can support the show and the network by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash cavegoblins. You can also support the show by leaving us a review on iTunes or talking about the show. You can find us on Twitter at DMs of Vancouver, at Jesse Boros, and at Sean P. Hagen. Our art is done by the wonderful Haley Boros. See more of her work at HaleyBoros.com. Our theme music is Overworld by Kevin McLeod. Find his work at Acompetech.com. Hey, my name is Eric. I'm Piers. And this is Podcast vs. Podcast. You're listening to us here on the Cave Goblin Network. We take turns pitching podcasts to each other. We're trying to find a good podcast to do because we don't have any ideas. So turn off whatever show you're listening to. Turn on our show. I was told that once, the earth was shaped like a dish. This was a time before mortals or the law. That time has long since passed, and no one tells those stories anymore. All they care to tell these days, over and over again, are the tales of Frost Cricket. Hear them all on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.